The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. You could open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Exodus, chapter 12. For several months, we've been in the book of Exodus as we have been studying the Ten Commandments. Last week, uh, because of Christmas, we took a break from our study of the Ten Commandments. And since this is the first Sunday of 2017 and it falls on the first day of the year, I thought that I would preach a message or talk to you about something that fits the day. Uh, I don't often preach a New Year's sermon, but the New Year doesn't always come on the first Sunday of the year. So our text today is Exodus chapter 12 and verse number 2. Uh, this is a short verse in which God spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. This month shall be the beginning of months to you. In other words, God said to Moses and Aaron, Happy New Year, Moses and Aaron. It was the new year for Israel. But it wasn't January the 1st, it was actually the month Abib. Our months of uh, January, or rather of uh, March and April, are approximate the time of Abib, the month of Abib. And if you go on reading here in the 12th chapter, you'll find how significant that this month was, because it was the time that was set for the killing of the Passover lamb. The death of the Passover lamb corresponds to Israel's deliverance from Egypt, and soon they would be standing at the foot of Mount Sinai where they would receive the commandments that we've been talking about. And there God would give them leadership and he would give them government. And then he would later establish them. He would make them a nation according to the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the Passover time was the time of their deliverance. And there they would march and they would go in to possess the land that God promised to their forefathers. And when they got into that land, that's where they would concentrate on worshiping the one true living God who had brought them out of Egypt. They were God's chosen people. And God promised that he would preserve them as a nation until the greatest of all kings would come. And that's the one that we talked about last week. When Jesus Christ comes, and one of these days, he is going to be the ruler over all nations of this entire world, and he will rule in righteousness. Now that's a, a spectacular promise that was made to Israel, that it will become a global kingdom. Israel is obscure now. They have never been uh, a world power but when Jesus comes to rule in his kingdoms, all nations will be governed from the temple in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will become the capital of the world. So the month Abib, the beginning, was a highly significant time for them because it made the people something different than they were before. They were slaves in Egypt. They were uh, under bondage. They were under taskmasters. But now God says this is a new day. This is a new year. And every year, I want you to start as a reminder that you were slaves in Egypt, and God brought you out of that awful bondage. He made you free. And with that in mind, knowing what God would do, Moses went to Pharaoh, and he said, Pharaoh, let us go, that we can worship the Lord our God. 
So the month Abib, that's the month of beginnings, it's the month of change, and it's actually emblematic of who we are in, as believers in Jesus Christ, that we are also set free, that we're set free from the bondage of the slavery of sin, we have become new creatures in Christ through the new birth, and now we're able to walk in the righteousness of Christ. We become citizens of His kingdom with the promise that we will rule and reign with Him. And because of what Christ has done for us, we ought also to say this, let us go and worship the Lord our God. Now I hope in these few words of introduction you understand that this passage gives us great spiritual parallels. That the death of the Passover lamb is emblematic of the death of Jesus Christ. That the blood of the lamb is for the protection of Israel, and that's symbolic of Christ's blood that is the covering for our sins and is the satisfaction of God's justice against us. And then going into the promised land, that is a parallel to the Christian life, a life that is to be lived in obedience to the laws that were given on Mount Sinai. So we have parallels, we have pictures in this, and... God wants us to recognize these things. On Mount Sinai were the laws of righteousness, and righteousness is the way of life for God's people. And so Abib meant something very special to Israel. Each beginning of the year, that brought them straight to the core of their religion. It took them straight to Passover. It took them directly to the mercy and the grace of God in saving them from Egypt. Now, although our new year does not officially signal our devotion to God, I do believe that each of us should remember the beginning of our life in Christ. It's good for us to go back and think about the day that we were saved and think about how God saves unworthy people as we were. The beginning of the year is a good time for us to think of the great salvation that Christ has given. Think about how your life is different from what it was before and how you're different from the lost that are around you. They have no hope except, or no, or they're lost without Christ. They don't have any hope. And if we have to force ourselves to that recognition because the new year doesn't hold the same significance for Christians as it did for the Jews, let's do that. Because we're also God's chosen people. However, I do want you to understand that our first month of the year does, in fact, have theological significance. Maybe you didn't know that. It's not because it's close to Christmas. Uh, I hate to say this, but, but Christmas is more a reaction to pagan holidays. It's not a mass. It's not the time of year that Jesus was born. Uh, the date was more dictated by Christians who wanted a holiday to counterbalance pagan holidays of the time. Uh, particularly uh, when Christmas came about, it was to uh, give the Christians something to do at Yuletide. Yuletide was a, a day that was dedicated, it was the winter solstice time, dedicated to the god Odin. And so the, the Christian holiday of Christmas grew out of that. We just Christianized the Yuletide. And so Christmas very closely corresponds to the time of the winter solstice. So the new beginning in January really doesn't have any connection to Christ, but it does have a connection to theology. It has a connection to the theology of the Romans. It's connected to one of the many gods that the Romans worshipped, and it was a god by the name of Janus that gave us the month of January. Now Janus is an interesting god. 
He's called the God of doors. I'll explain that in just a moment. But he was the God of beginnings. He was the God of the sunrise and of the sunset. He was pictured as a God that had two faces. One face that looked forward and the other looked backward. And his image was put on doors throughout the Roman Empire and on buildings throughout the empire. And so he was called the God of doors. And so on many of the Roman doors and the Roman buildings, there's this image of this two-faced God that is named Janus. One face looked back through the door to see what was behind, and the other face looked forward to see what was ahead. And the Romans believed that if they prayed to the God Janus, that they would have a good beginning. And so they would pray at the time of uh, sowing the seeds, the time of the planting season. They would also pray at the beginning of the harvest. Prayers were made at the beginning of marriages, that they would start out well, they would be successful. At the birth of babies, prayers were made to Janus that the baby would grow strong and be vibrant. And so this was all about starting right, that if you start right, you're more likely uh, to end well. You have good hope that you will end well. And so every time that a Roman passed through the door, he saw this god Janus, the image of Janus, and going through the door symbolized that there would be a new beginning. Of course, all of that superstition. There is no god Janus. There's no power in an idol to help anyone, and there was none in any of the many gods that the Romans worship. But the Romans did have something going for them in principle. They did understand this well, and it's a good principle for us, that there is a need to pray at the beginning of any exercise that we have. When we're getting ready to start something, it's a good time to pray and ask God if this is what he wants us to do, and to ask God to give us good success in everything that we're going to do in our lives, particularly those things that are geared towards his service, the things that we're going to do for him. So we ask God's blessings and to give us good success. Now, I'd like you to turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3, if you will. And here I'd like for us to make an application of the importance of a good beginning. In the Philippian letter, the Apostle Paul writes about the life of joy and peace, and he talks about how a Christian's life can be enjoyable and successful, and that it can be lived with security even when the world is crumbling all around us. If the world is falling apart, it doesn't matter to the Christian. Paul said that you can be content even in those times. I understand that Philippians is a prison letter. Paul was in a Roman prison, but he didn't have a prison mentality. He was not in a type of oppression that he just could not make it through. Now, if I could read just a, a part of the introduction to the letter in chapter 1, he said in verse number 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he said that just after the end of verse 20 where he says, Christ will be magnified in my body whether it is by life or by death. So that's hardly the attitude of a man who is defeated. Prison didn't defeat him. Cruel treatment did not defeat him. The desertion of those that he thought were his friends did not defeat him. And so now we go to chapter 3, and we see how it perfectly dovetails into these thoughts of looking behind and looking forward in the new year. 
Now, I, I have marked here that we're going to read verses 12 through 14, but I think it's good for us to go back up a little further uh, towards the beginning of the chapter. And let's start in verse number 7, reading there. Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. But I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus." There we read a marvelous statement of courage under fire, and it draws us into the great implications of how Christians are to view their service to Christ. Now, the title of my message today is Resolved to be Righteous. Pressing on towards the mark of our high calling in Christ requires a strong resolve to be righteous in thought, in attitudes, and in actions. At the beginning of each year, people ask you, have you made any resolutions? I don't know where that idea first got started, making New Year's resolutions, but all of you are familiar with those. And some of you may have your list, and you've done that maybe every year, and you know that sometimes the list doesn't work out all that well, does it? I, I, I was remember reading, uh, remember reading um, some resolutions that a man made that he continued to write down year after year and tried to achieve and he wrote that in the year 2014, he said, I resolved to get my weight under 180 pounds. In 2015, he said, I resolved to get my weight under 190 pounds. And in 2016, he said, I resolved to get my weight under 200 pounds. And he says, now in 2017, I resolved to take a realistic attitude towards my weight. So you know that those things really don't always work out very well. Jonathan Edwards, who was the powerful preacher of the Great Awakening, made 70 resolutions for his life. And you look over what he wrote and look at the life that he lived and you find that his testimony was really good. That he fulfilled many of his resolutions, if not all of them. But the one that particularly interested me for this message is number 30 in Edwards' list, in which he said... Resolved to strive to my utmost every week to be brought higher in religion and to a higher exercise of grace than I was the week before. And if I could reinterpret that in light of Philippians 3, I would say resolved that I will become more righteous. With every passing week, which turns into years, I resolved to reach a higher plane, to stand in a higher place of holiness before the Lord God to be a more righteous person in everything that I do and every year and not to have to go back and retread old ground because I've fallen back. I want to be righteous 
more and more every year. And I believe that would be Paul's attitude in Philippians. Not to dwell in the past, but to press towards the future for the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Today I'd like to give you just very simple statements, three simple statements that I believe can help you to meet this resolution to be more righteous. And I do hope that's what you want. I mean, who, who could call themselves a Christian that did not want to be more like Jesus Christ? Righteousness is the essence of a Christian life. So here's what needs to be done. We can start with this. According to the passage that we read in Philippians, the first thing that we can do is to forget the former. This is Paul's advice in verse number 13. Forgetting those things which are behind. Paul is not talking about past failures. That's not really what was bothering him. He wasn't thinking about past struggles or the hardships that he went through. But putting the past behind him was to quit dwelling on what he had accomplished. Even the good things that he did. Because the past would cause him to lose focus on what was ahead. He was heading towards Christ. His faith would end in sight. And if he got his eye off of that, the past would cause him to switch the focus. Like a runner that runs the race, he couldn't keep looking back to see how much ground that he'd covered. That would only slow him down. And so he wanted to keep looking forward because that would strive, make him strive harder to reach the finish line, to get to the place that he's going. Now that's the Apostle Paul. Not worried about what happened in the past as far as failures are concerned, but just simply to keep the focus right on what is coming ahead of him, making his way towards that final prize in Jesus Christ. But each of us knows that the past has a different effect on us many times. That is, there are too many things that happened to us before that we just don't want to turn loose of. We keep those in our minds and we bring those things into the present and those things keep weighing us down. It makes us harder for us to lift our feet and to run quickly towards the finish. There are hurts and there are frustrations. There are heartaches because of what people have done to you. You don't want to try anymore. You don't want to do anything any longer. You don't want to be, in, you don't want to be involved. And you're thinking that the past is just an indication of the future. And you're just waiting for the same old things to happen to you again. Many people are like that concerning church. They say, I've been burned. I've been hurt. I'm not going to go through that again. And sometimes the church will let you down. Or at least you perceive that it has. A person didn't do what you wanted them to do. They didn't... Uh, respond in the way that you thought that they should. Someone said something to you or they were just too cold or uncaring towards you. I remember there was a, a lady who became a member of our church a few years ago and she was a very needy person. And we can appreciate that. Some people are truly needy. But she left the church a little bit later because she didn't think that she was getting enough support. And then I found out at a later time that she had left her previous church for the same reason. She didn't think that she was getting enough support. And I suspect that she probably left the next one for the very same reason. And her problem was that she was always living in the past. She's always thinking about past things. And what she was really doing was focusing on what people had done to her and how people had treated her. And she was worried about what the pastor is going to do now and what the people are going to do now. And she never had her focus on Jesus Christ. And if you do that, you're going to quickly learn that people will disappoint you. 
We're all sinners. This is the thing that we do. We disappoint. We, we are imperfect people, and we hurt each other. That happens. And if you focus on, uh, on people instead of Christ, your expectations will be ruined. The only one who never disappoints is Christ. And I'm not saying that the people that you depend on are always wrong. I'm just saying don't learn to be satisfied with them because you were not made in Christ to be satisfied with human imperfections. And so until you start to look at everyone in Christ as you are in Christ, you will be disappointed. Because this is what the way that Christ was. He taught us to overlook everyone else's faults. When they do something to us, overlook those things. Forgive those faults because that's exactly the thing that Christ did for you. Now, if you continue to live in the past, the past becomes a penitentiary for you. You, you, you bring the same problems and all the same misgivings into the present world and they continue to be the reality that you live in. And that focus is wrong. You were saved to serve Christ and Him alone now, although as members of a church we serve each other, yet our focus as we do is to be on Jesus Christ. Now, another problem of the past is more akin to the uh, resolution failures that I mentioned a few minutes ago. You set your goals, but it seems that you never make the goals. You always fail in the work. And so you've come to the place that you have no confidence in, in anything that you do to be a a great example for Christ. When we come to that place, the, the book of Philippians has an answer for us there as well. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 4.13, where he said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That verse actually means that Christ can do all things through me. That is, all things that Christ wants done, not all the things that I want to do. You don't want to get the focus of the verse wrong. If you want to do what Christ wants done, and you keep your focus on Him, you will accomplish what you want to do. Now, reading a little bit further, down to verse number 19, Paul said, But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So let's make sure that we read Philippians right. This entire letter is about what can be done in the power of the Lord. And this is why Paul could write as a prisoner, not in despair, because God had put him where he was for his purposes. In the 12th verse of chapter 1, But I would ye understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. And then there's a third view of the past that might surprise you. That there are many Christians who are too focused on the successes of the past. It's not failure that bothers them and hinders them. Oddly enough, they are hindered in the present because they become satisfied with the past. Oh yes, they did well. Uh, they had good ministries. They were admired as model Christians. But now, what they do is live in the energy of the past. They're used to do Christians. When you speak to them, it's always about what they used to do. They put in their time, they did their duty, and now they live on a permanent vacation. They're done. They're satisfied. They did all they needed to do, so they're just finished. They're happy with their past. 
So they no longer have jobs in the church. They can't do very much because they're not here all that much. But I tell you what I think God likes, and I hope that it's okay for me to say this. I think uh, God likes a man like Brother Gary Moline, someone who's more than 70 years old and yet's here nearly every service and after all these years spends his time with our choir and all that's required to make that happen. And then overseeing our missions program in the church. There's a man who didn't sit down. Don't be a Christian that looks back through the door of the past and sits on his laurels. Paul never talked about sitting down and resting and pulling over to a park bench and saying, I'm done. This is my retirement. I put in enough time. Now I can rest. And they just sit there and think about their past accomplishments. Paul was not done. This is why he said, I keep pressing towards the mark. He said, I haven't reached the place and I don't think I will. That I've apprehended everything that I need to be in Jesus Christ. And did you know that the rewards of the past service can actually be lost if you're poor in the present? He said that there are works that can be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble because they will be proved to have been more about you than they were about Christ. When do we rest? Do we ever get a chance to rest? Well, we do. Revelation tells us when. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. You can rest when you're dead. And if you keep busy in the present, always working, the Word of God says those works will follow you on into heaven, an abundant entrance into the glory of God in the presence of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, works can be lost if you've used them as a prop and you're excused to say, I'm done. And then there's one other thing about the past. This is, this is serious, and there are some that are hindered by it. And it may be a sin that you did in the past, and because of your shame, you won't do anything in the present. You're afraid that somebody will keep throwing up that sin to you, and sometimes they do. But the big question is, did you repent of it? And if you repented of it, it's not remembered by the only one who actually counts. God forgives in Jesus Christ. Sins are not remembered any longer, and you can turn loose of those sins because... God has turned loose of them. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So don't let those confessed, forsaken sins hinder you because God doesn't remember that sin. Now the second thing that we need to do according to Philippians 3 is that we are to foresee the future. Don't mistake what I'm saying here. Uh, on Commerce Drive, I notice that there's a psychic palm and card reader. Don't go there, because nobody can see the future in that way, and neither should you try. But there are some things that the Bible tells you that you can be sure of the future, so sure it's as if they have already happened. The Bible says that we have sure hope in Christ, that our hope in Him is not maybe... It's not, it could happen. It might or it might not happen. That's not the hope that's described for Christians. Our hope has no uncertainty in it. It's sure, it's steadfast, because it's anchored in Christ who can never fail. You can be absolutely sure of some things. You can be sure about your salvation. 
If you trust Jesus Christ today, then you know that your citizenship is indelibly stamped with the king's seal, that you have a seat at his table, that you have a room that's reserved for you in his palace. He has saved you from the penalty of your past sins. You're being saved in the present from your from the power of sin, and you will be saved in the future when you get to glory from the very presence of sin. So past, present, and future are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. So you can look through the door to an eternal life of hope. Hebrews 7.25 says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. That's what Christ is doing now. For every believer, he makes intercession for them. If you have Christ in your life, if you know him, because of him, you cannot die. Now, recently, I, I, I read a great article that explained why that in the Lord's Supper, Jesus did not mention the Passover lamb. Talked about the Passover lamb just a moment ago. The disciples observed the Passover. They, they killed the lamb. They ate it as required. And then when they had finished, Jesus gave them a new meal. He said, you're not going to need the Passover meal any longer. He gave them a new meal. And that new meal has no mention of the Passover lamb. And do you know why? Because Christ was never going to die again. He would die one time. They didn't need to kill a Passover lamb because Christ is not going to die again. So there's no need to observe a mass. We don't turn wine into blood or blood into uh, wine into the blood of Christ or, or a bread into his flesh. Christ died one time. He's never going to die again. And so instead, Jesus chose a new symbol for his supper. That's bread. And that bread would be forever a picture of the nourishment of life that we have in him. Now, as you look at the future then, you don't have any need to fear. Oh, you may ask, is, is the road going to be steep? For sure it will. It absolutely will. Going back to Philippians chapter 1, now I'm talking about the person who's trying to serve Christ. It will be a hard road. Paul promised that it would be hard. He said in chapter 1 verse 29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. He was in prison, and he suffered. And he said, if you want a promise, I promise you this. You will suffer as a Christian. Now, apparently he failed to read the latest copy of Joel Osteen's book. He didn't know that you didn't actually have to. But this is what he said in verse number 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be present, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that's it. The present is a struggle. We struggle for the faith of the gospel. Did you experience pain in your past Christian life? In all your relationships? Were you burned at one time? Were you disappointed in people? Then be prepared for the same in the future. You're not going to burn in hell, but you will have the pain and toil and affliction of the Christian life. And I know as you sit there and listen to that, we think that sounds so bad. Toil and affliction and pain as a Christian. But you know who are actually the most miserable Christians? They're the ones that sat down in the middle of the fight. They're the ones that said, I can't do this anymore. They stopped fighting. 
And so thus they aren't close to the Lord any longer. The Lord sends his trials of affliction for this very purpose. They cause you to depend on him. If you had no trials, you would never call on him to help you through them. And so the person who says, well, I can't do this any longer. I just can't handle it anymore. That's when you begin to feel the arms of God slip from around you. Oh, he's always there, but you don't realize it, and you get out of touch with God. And I know that that seems very strange to us, but it's actually the struggle of this whole thing, of the Christian life, that keeps us close to Him, that keeps us depending on Him every day. It's just as the song says. It takes a storm now and then to remind me to depend, to depend upon the Lord and to rest in His Word for in the wind and the rain, I learned to call on his name. And I thank him in my song. It took a storm to make me strong. And so it takes that struggle. In that struggle, you can feel that you're protected. And you know that the Lord's fighting for you. So you can expect it to be tough. It will be. But also expect that it will be glorious because as you constantly engage in that fight and you prepare for the fight, you're reaching out to touch God. God designed it that way. He made it hard so you'd cry out to Him. The psalmist said, Remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction. For thy word hath quickened me. So God puts the obstacles in your way. He puts the hurdles for you to jump. He puts the mountains there for you to climb to let you know that you can depend on Him. And so instead of sulking about it and worrying about some, what someone did to you, look to the future and see how this trial that God brings you through will cause you to be more like Christ who endured all suffering for you to bring you to Him. Draw nigh to God, the Word says, and He will draw nigh to you. So we forget the former. We foresee the future. And that future is a home in heaven. And do you know who will have the greatest capacity to enjoy heaven? It's the people that kept on fighting. It's those that endured the struggle without quitting. These are the ones that have good hope in Christ. Peter said, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things... Ye shall never fall, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That brings me to our final observation, the place where I desire to bring you to today. And this is thirdly, that we are to focus on finishing. Edwards resolved that every week he would strive to his utmost to be brought higher in religion and to the higher exercise of grace. Now you notice when you're reading Paul's writings that he fills up a lot of his space with sports metaphors. Years ago, there was another lady in our church who was very upset with the former pastor because she thought his sermons were too much about men. And she took exception to his sports metaphors, especially the ones about football. Now today, there are many women that watch football, uh, there are women that are sideline reporters. Occasionally, as I saw on the college broadcast, football broadcast not long ago, there was a woman commentary, a commentator for the game. And I'll forgo all my thoughts about commenting on that sad situation, but that's the way it was. So I spoke to this lady in the church, and I told her that from a biblical perspective, 
there's no room to complain because Paul used sports metaphors. Now, particularly, he compared life to running a race. Uh, He was familiar with the Grecian games being closer to them than we are, the original Olympics. And one of his sports allusions is right here in our text in verse number 14. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That prize that he's talking about is like a medal in the Olympics. Or in his day, it would be a, a crown uh, made in the, like a wreath that's placed on the head of the winner. In another place, Paul said, And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. In order to win the prize, you have to abide by the rules. You have to strive according to the predetermined conditions for winning. In other words, you can't cheat. And what rules do you suppose that have been made for this race? Now, if you've heard me preach 22 sermons thus far on the Ten Commandments and you don't get this one right, go back to the corner over there and sit with a dunce cap on your head. The rules for this race are the commandments of God. That's the rule book. If you're a Christian who's unconcerned about commandments, then you are a cheater to the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. The focus is on finishing well, and in order to do it, you've got to strive according to the rules. You must have the rules in mind. And you're not going to have the rules in mind unless you buried yourself in the rule book. That's a reason, a good reason to make this year a resolution, maybe to use that little paper that's in your bulletin about reading through the Bible this year. Familiarize yourself with the rule book. Uh, just recently, I, I saw a little video on a, on a young lady that was in a tennis tournament, and she momentarily forgot the rules. The rule says that when you throw the ball into the air, that you must serve it. You just can't throw it up and let it fall. So she threw the ball in the air, and for just a moment, she forgot the rule. And then at the last moment, she thought, wait a minute, I have to swing at that. That's the rule. But she swung too late, and the ball fell and hit her on the head. And so that moment that she forgot the rule has been preserved for everybody to watch over and over again as this tennis player had the ball hit her in the head. Now, the rules are what you have to live by. You don't want to let the rules hit you in the head. You must know them in order to strive lawfully for the prize. So you keep pressing towards the prize, and to do that, we must be righteousness. That's what must be righteous. That's what righteousness is. It is to live by the law. Now, Peter gave advice on it. And, and not just advice, he said, this is what you're supposed to do. Now, if you'll look at this, uh, please, in Second Peter chapter 1, this is what Jonathan Edwards said is higher religion, is the higher exercise of grace. I said in this sermon, I've used the term righteousness. It's all about righteousness. Peter has another term for it. He calls it a life. He calls it life and godliness. But all those things are, are the same thing. Grace, growing in grace, and higher exercise of grace, more righteousness, life and godliness, it's all the same. This is how Peter says, Second Peter 1 verse 3, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, 
giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a great summary of what this Christian life is about. We do not want to be barren or unfruitful. We focus on finishing well by adding all the graces that Paul mentions in this passage. These are things that bring us into conformity with Christ. Why do we do this? Why do this? Because it helps us to finish well. Now, you might want to note some things here. Take, take some extra notes if you like. Why do we do these things? We do them, first of all, for God's glory. We could start there and end there if we wanted. This is not about us. It's about Him. Have you thought about it? Why does Christ love you? Why did He die for you? Is it because you're lovable? Is it because He can't live without you? I think it's Rick Warren who said that God loves you so much that He can't live without you. Is that right? God can't live without you? Well, I would remind you that God lived before you. God's eternally existent. He'll continue without you. He's not going to skip a beat without you. I mean, that, the testimony to that is millions of people that die and go to hell, that God never gives a second thought over now that they're in hell. He's abandoned all of that. So that testimony of millions who die without Jesus Christ shows us that He can actually do without us. But God saved us for a purpose. God saved us for His glory. He started a nation, and He gave them a first month. He gave them a new year. He gave them a new land. He gave them commandments to live by. And all of those things were meant for His glory. And in these days, a Christian's salvation is for God's glory. Then secondly, if you're going to finish well, you've got to keep growing in grace. Every year, you, you learn better assurance or no better assurance in Christ. Do you know who the Christians are that doubt their salvation? It's the ones who should. It's the ones who should. It's the ones that don't produce any fruit. If you can sit down and not press forward, you need to be worried. Because fruit is the evidence that faith is real. You want to produce fruit if you're going to finish well because those are the roots of assurance of salvation. Thirdly, you want to finish well for the benefit of others. You want to live a good, godly, and holy life. You want to pursue, pursue righteousness because the lost need a testimony of faith. Now you think about this, the lost need to see faith. Because you know what they mostly see from Christians? Hypocrisy. Christians that aren't what they say that they are. They need a good testimony of faith. You need to finish well, stay in the race, keep striving to be a testimony to people who need to know Jesus Christ. Don't claim to be something that you're not. You need to grow in grace for the benefit of the lost, and you also need to grow in grace for the benefit of your church. Finish well. Do it for the saved. Be an encouragement to their faith. 
Can you imagine how ineffective that Paul would have been if he sat there in prison and all he did all day long was cry at his swill about how unfair that life is? Oh, grow up. Stand up. Be a man. Be a woman for Christ. Be of the faith so that a new Christian or a weak Christian or really all Christians have a testimony to follow. Paul said, you can follow me as I follow Christ. He focused on finishing well. And in still another sports analogy, he explained this in his last letter that he wrote before he died. Here he gives the swan song in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only but unto all them also that love his appearing. Focus on the finish. When is the finish? Have you thought about that? When is the finish? Anybody come in here today, first day of 2017, and you're prepared to say right now, this is the end. We're finished. This is it. This is the last year for me. A few weeks ago, I had a meeting with the deacons where we made some plans that will take us 20 years into the future. And when we start talking about this, we all talked as if we're going to be here to see that all the way to the end. But there are two things that I don't know. I don't know the day of my death. And I don't know when Jesus is going to come back. And so if I'm going to finish well, I'd better be doing it now, and I better keep doing it, because there's only one unknown breath that separates me from eternity. If I'm going to finish well, I can't do anything other than to be finishing right now, all the time. Now, Paul was close to knowing the day of his death when he wrote in 2 Timothy. Probably the death sentence was already handed down. Maybe he had the execution order in his hand. The time may have been set. He didn't want to receive that news before he had focused on finishing well. So you know what Paul did? It started with the very beginning of his Christian life. He was on the road to Damascus when the Lord called him. And at the very beginning, when God spoke to him, he said what? Lord, what will you have me to do? And God said, I'm glad that you asked. And he said, Paul, start running. Start running now. Don't let up. This is a month of beginnings for you. This is your year of beginnings. Start running the race. Run, Paul, run. You're free. Run as hard as you can. And that's what Paul did. Continually striving for the mastery in Christ. Now that's what I want to ask you as we finish today. Are you staring through the door looking at the past? Is that hindering you from what you do in the present? Are you sure of your salvation because you are working now? Because you are producing fruit that you show that you're in the race and there is a finish line that is ahead of you that you are striving to reach? Ask yourself, is January the month of beginnings for you? This month, 2017, this year, is your month Abib. It's your time. The door is open to future blessings. And to see them, you've got to keep looking towards the future through that door. Don't be staring at the past. Be determined that you'll seize all the blessings that are yours in Christ. And you do this when you resolve to be righteous. You can't be righteous without this. 
without continually striving for the mastery in Jesus Christ. So resolve to be closer to him in 2017. Live for Christ. And he says you will receive the reward of righteousness. The prize will be yours. Focus on finishing well. Let's pray. Father, we we come to you now uh, thanking you for the past, for the last year that we saw so many blessings. And what an encouragement that is for us to keep reaching forward. And I pray that this is what we would do, that each and every one of us as your people would start today, that we would, if we haven't been doing it in the past, that we, we would make this a new day to follow you. May this be our abib. Maybe, may this be the time that we say we're, we resolve to be righteous, to follow you in all things. Lord, help us to be better people for you. I pray for anyone here who's maybe lost today. There, there's no, no struggle that this passage talks about for the lost person. That, that's no hope. There is no hope in that. The hope is only in Jesus Christ. So I pray, Lord, you would save someone today. And, and do this, Lord, if, if there are Christians here that could say, I've heard the message, but I know that I'm not where I need to be. I, I don't feel like I'm fulfilling what I should be as a Christian. Here are our keys. This is what Paul gave us to, to do that would help us to accomplish that task of reaching the prize of Jesus Christ. Help us to follow the principles that we find in the message today and in your word. Thank you, Lord, for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.